0: Welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken.
1: If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why
0: And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. On this episode of Why Make, we have Michael Perrier,
1: a consummate furniture maker with an elegant, understated aesthetic.
0: We have found throughout the course of our conversations that making is a journey, both physical and mental, and Michael is no different in that regard as he has traveled extensively, studied Tai Chi, spent time as a professional photographer, and worked in a library. Please join us on
1: One Maker's journey as we found out what inspires and motivates Michael Perrier. So we like to start these conversations with the why make question which is what's your first memory of making and you know I'll I'll tag onto that you come from an amazingly creative family so I'm sort of curious what your first memories of making are in a family of makers.
2: Gosh you know that it's very interesting that you brought that up in a way It, it stimulated something I hadn't thought about for a long time was that when we they were at first there were just 3 of us i'm mean, the the third oldest you know but the total of there are seven kids but i remember we lived in an apartment building and my mother was a school teacher and she had paper and crayons and paints and all these things that were we just had access to play with you know and there was no no rules about you know stay within the line you know it's just like Go for it. And that was kind of their attitude about us trying things. You know, it wasn't like, oh, no, no, here, let me fix that for you or whatever. It's just you, you know, you did it and you failed and whatever. You know, uh, I guess one of the early things I remember making is a wooden boat, you know, just a piece of one by, you know, with a kind of bow like thing on in front, and, and a, a dowel in it for a mass and a paper, you know. Uh, but I grew up, I mean, my father was very handy and I, I think actually had an artistic streak, which he never had the opportunity to really, um, explore. Uh, but he, you know, I used to hang out with him and, and, and his buddies in a way, and in some ways, unlike my other siblings. And I found these guys fascinating, you know, these older guys who were doing things that, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't art or anything, but they just would be able to do things. They could fix things. They could, you know, and they were, it wasn't a big deal, you know? It wasn't like, oh my God, you know, people now, oh, my pipe's broken. Oh, geez, what, you know, what am I gonna do, you know? And, you know, they just fix it. And yeah, yeah, that kind of attitude really, I guess I was imprinted by it, you know, that if you want to do something, just do it. And, you know, I think Martin also kind of, um has that same experience to, you know, he, he's a different person in lots of ways and his history is, you know, somewhat different in terms of his becoming an artist.
1: I, I just want to interject Martin as your brother, a, a sculptor.
2: Yes. And, but, uh, you know, we, all of us were, you know, and we were encouraged to, you know, my mother used to say, there's no such thing as women's work and men's work. So we learned to sew, we learned to cook, You know, everybody knew how to use a screwdriver and a hammer and a pair of pliers, you know? I mean, it was just, that was the way it was. And now that I look back on it, I realized how special that was to basically live where making or using that physical, your physical intelligence really, because that's really what it is, uh, was encouraged and and very uh, supported in a in an unsupported kind of way, you know, it wasn't, I know I have a cut. Co- I had a cousin who um, he was uh, on my mother's side and his mother wouldn't let him. Oh, you can't do that kind of thing. And he grew up really upset about that because he saw us just having the freedom to try this, to do that, you know, and he was being squelched, squelched, squelched. And, um, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, I have, I have such respect for what my parents did for us and not to say that they didn't make mistakes and that we all do, don't have our, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't uh leave it to beaver, you know? <laughs> but there was somehow something. And I wish I had more opportunity to have talked to them about yeah. that. Oh. You know, where, where that came from, that impulse, you know, like, very early on they started taking us camping you know and uh you know we were the only black people we ever saw during that period you know and it wasn't a problem necessarily but you know growing up black you're always aware of that what environments you're in let's put it that way and but that was also very important it really turned us on to nature to to the larger that we all live with. It supports us. I mean, you know, when you know, when I think about how important nature is, you know, we couldn't live without it.
0: It it's so weird. I I grew up camping with my family too, and I couldn't imagine having any other any other thing. Mm-hmm. I mean so you live when you grew up, um you know, like before you went to high school and stuff. What where were you growing up?
2: Uh in Washington D. C. I was born in Washington, D C southwest was where the the majority well that's not even true really either but it kind of became a a, a location where african americans were more dominant let's put it that way but you know there were other other enclaves i mean my mother grew up in southeast and they had a cow <laughs> and chickens and you know there at that house and uh the city, so anyway, after the war, Southwest had some substandard housing and it had some temporary buildings that it had put up during the war. And so they, they decided that they were going to do this revitalization. And I think it was one of the first urban renewal projects you know, in the country. And basically what they did was basically pretty much tore everything down in Southwest and rebuilt it, except for where we lived. The building that we lived in and the school we went to are still, you know, existing.
0: Those two singular
2: buildings. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I don't know why that is, but, but when they did it, what happened is that in that complex, which was all African-American, you know, they were largely government- Work, people working in the government, you know, um, they, and you know, and basically middle class as well. I mean, you know, uh, which is another aspect of being African-American that's kind of overlooked a lot, the diversity of cultural differences among African-Americans. But anyway, they largely moved out, you know, because of just the the one, it was an opportunity to, to buy because everybody was a rental and that kind of set off the whole urban uh the uh, white flight thing throughout the city we moved to northeast and it was we were the the third black family on our block the other two were doctors and we were the first with kids and uh over the years basically the the neighborhood became predominantly black there were some people who stayed and you know they were part of the community and all it wasn't you know it it was really an interesting phenomenon to happen to dc i mean that's where i got to be known as a you know a black city more or less you know um because uh largely the the white population moved to the suburbs right now the opposite is happening there's a gentrification going on of people huh. coming into the city and replacing the black and Hispanic populations that were into the city and they're being pushed out to the suburb. But it was interesting when we sold our house after my father died, we sold it to the first white people on the block. So that's 50 some years. That's a 50 some year period of time that, you know, this thing went from one way to the other and then swinging back, you know, and uh, it's, it's a good kind of, example of of american racism
0: so you're growing up in washington dc um spending some of your your formative years you know talk talk about some of your experiences as a kid in washington dc and 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 kind of moving on into
2: again we were very fortunate because my mother i think it was well i don't know it was my father too i mean The two of them, I mean, you know, that's the thing. I can't parse who influenced what, you know, the most. But uh, we were, as soon as we could write our, print our names, we got library cards. And the, also the Smithsonian Institution was right there on the mall. It was not far from where we lived and to have access to that whole thing i mean i remember going in there and having my mind blown and you just realized as a young kid yeah <laughs> I, I, and <laughs> yeah. i you know i live in this amazing world look yeah. at this, look at what man has done here look at how they did this here look at those animals you know i have a, i have a joke i say i have no smudges on the dioramas still You know? <laughs> i mean i just loved it we just loved it and you know, and it was always a place that we could go and just hang out and just, you know. They also took us to live theater. I remember seeing Peter Pan and the King and I live. And so those experiences just, I mean, that's what, that's one of the big problems is is they were, they broadened us. And for the average African-American, they had their experiences actually been the opposite. The constriction, the 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 closing down of of opportunity, of sense of self, you know. Um, and um, so anyway, um, I went. We started um, when we moved. We started into a parochial school, Catholic school. Uh, when we were pretty much the first family of of black kids there. Uh, by time my youngest brothers finished, it was predominantly a black school. Um, and, you know, this was just, you know, the expression of that whole phenomenon of, of dislocation that happened through that period. And uh, so I spent, and I'm going to be more personal, I spent a lot of time around white kids Uh I, it wasn't a big issue in school. It wasn't, it wasn't much of an issue at all. I mean, we were all aware, you know. But when it, it it kind of became more of an issue was when in the seventh and eighth grade, when these kids started having parties, just wasn't, you know, these were my friends. and But you just never were invited. And there was un- nothing said un-spoken. or anything. It was just like this... But you'd hear about the, oh, I had, you know, so-and-so had a party, you know, and you just kind of, I mean, you knew what it was, you know, it's not like you were caught off guard or anything, but it just was a very um, strange experience.
0: So some of the things that, you know, art was around you as a, as a child, were there, were there other aspects of, of making, you were talking about starting off with, with crayons and paper and. You know I had that around too although I tended to draw off out of the lines and up on the walls got a little bit in trouble so what what were some of the things that were kind of informing the the, the more artistic side during those years or or did that take a break and not hit you until later? Uh, I
2: would say it it, it it didn't develop I mean Martin um, he had a, had a knack for doing very good drawings in fact he had one of his drawings in grade school. You know, probably when he was in fourth or fifth grade, put on the cover of the Scholastic magazine. It was a picture of a, a monkey and a palm tree and coconuts and stuff. And we, one of my uncles uh, who lived near us in the Southwest, he, you know, then everybody kind of saw this artistic tendency in my brother. He was, he was very, uh, it wasn't like the rest of us you know I was you know I hung out with the gang, I was running around you know like our gang, you know kind of thing, and he would come out and play, but if he wasn't if it wasn't something that interested him, he would just go off you know and and it was no big deal, it wasn't you know like I'm not gonna play with you no, he'd just disappear and do whatever he wanted to do, and that's been his nature in in lots of ways. But anyway, my uncle uh, saw this artistic tendency and paid for him to go to uh, this woman, Mrs. Uditsky's art school. Wow. So he started going to art school, you know, in grade school. And, you know, I think that that was really set him on the path of really seeing mm-hmm. seeing something which I didn't see at that point is the expressive quality of art.
1: So your path, though, was, I'd say, it sounds like you were very visually inspired. And then, and then you went to your undergrad and you,
2: and you studied anthropology. Yeah, Did you get an
1: advanced degree in anthropology? Uh, no,
2: no. Actually, that wasn't what I I, I went to college twice. Um, I went first uh, right out of high school and I was studying zoology. Oh, wow. Because okay. I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist. And largely that was because I was into diving, you know, I just wanted to dive, you know, for a living. (laughs) But from there, you went into
1: photography.
2: Yes. Uh, And that was something that kind of got, um, my father, when, before we were around had been into photography and he had this Argus Anastigmat uh, 35 millimeter camera. And, you know, he had, he hadn't, um, you know, I think he had, he and some friends had a dark room for a while, you know, but, you know, the camera would just, was in his drawer and, you know, you'd pick it up and look at it and open it up and, you know, that sort of thing. And it just kind of, you know, mechanics fascinated me. I was, was a kid who took things apart and I really believe that that was a very important part of my education. You know, and I still do it, you know, I mean, I want to know how things work, you know.
1: It's a very interesting evolution because I want to say that I I grew up with a brother who was a very talented artist
0: Mm -hmm.
1: who I idolized Mm -hmm. and his nickname was Buster because (laughs) he constantly (laughs) took things apart. And he took everything apart. Yeah, I mean, I did he too. took apart our television as a kid, and it just—and <laughs> he broke the channel changer. And uh, uh. It, it drove me to distraction. But he ended up being a, a world-renowned dancer and choreographer. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But he started as a tinkerer and as a as a somebody who. Destroyed everything in his path. Yeah,
2: yeah, but you know that this is this is our failure of our education in a way is that we aren't really addressing children. We're we're trying to teach adults, and they're still children. I think that there's not enough play in young education, because to me, play was where I learned a lot of stuff. You know, and and also unstructured play where you actually fell down and hurt yourself or you know uh you but you learned about certain kind of personal resiliency and uh you know ability to to overcome obstacles like there was more risk involved instead of like exactly exactly and and you need there's a certain part in our development where we need that experience we need to confront fear i I, we're such a fearful nation but you know i mean you know, nobody wants to talk about Hansel and Gretel. And, you know, we've got those nursery rhymes and, you we're know, We're all afraid of the Wicked Witch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, and, the oven. and you know, <laughs> they, yeah, they were powerful and scary, but in some ways they were also a ex- safe exposure to that didn't have a, a big consequence to you and made, I think it made me, you know, not so fearful, you know, in life the, years of college, I wasn't, you know, doing it very diligently. Yeah, and I was paying my own way. In those days, you could do that. It took a lot. But I told my parents, I said, I wanted to drop out, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I was expecting them to react strongly because, you know, there was this implicit idea that you were going to go to college. And they just said, okay, well, you know, you can stay here, but you'd have to start paying rent. And I had a job at that point, you know, part-time, which turned into a full-time job. And so for six years, I worked for the D.C. Public Library, and then uh, got drafted and went to St. Louis uh, as a, a medical lab technician, and uh, that was an experience too. But it was very unmilitary. There wasn't a base. I worked in a in the federal building. Um, there was this area regional uh, med lab, and I was doing uh biochemistry and toxicology one of the, the experiences of being in the military is you come in contact with people you probably would never have come in contact with
0: oh isn't that the truth i'm a military brat i was never yeah, in the military so yeah tangentially uh, right. with my you father just, and some and of my cousins i was able to experience that
2: so it was it was a very interesting experience overall you know i i you know i it, it wasn't something i wanted to do for sure uh, in fact i was against the war but i mm-hmm. wasn't at that point en- enough savvy enough n- to know how to avoid it so then i came out and i went to europe and then continued to work for the library all told i did 11 years with the library
0: oh my goodness and, and this was all at the in the same library system
2: yeah same library same <laughs> the same, same uh my boss the same staff Yeah, pretty much. Oh, that's that's wonderful. um, It was it was like a family, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way.
1: Uh, Were were you a reference librarian? No, I uh, I was
2: was... initially. I started as a page, which is basically the guy putting the books back on the shelf. And by the time I left, I was the uh, supervisor of circulation. You know, I I did do some reader advisor stuff. You know, when was necessary. You know, because I, you know, you learn the collection, you know where to look for things. Yeah. But uh, but at that point, I had also been into photography. I'd started uh, teaching myself photography. Martin had been in the Peace Corps and he came back and was working uh, training in Jamaica, training Peace Corps volunteers. And I don't remember what circumstances he this opportunity came to him to buy and be able to buy some Nikons. I, He said, "Did I want one?" And I said, "Yeah." And so we, he got a Nikerman, I got a Nikon. And we went to um, Alaska. We did a trip on the Noatak River, uh, 100 miles above the Arctic Circle, to the Arctic Ocean, and th- that was an amazing trip. We had done one actually before to the Arctic in, in Scandinavia. We hiked from central Sweden to the coast of Norway, above the Arctic Circle, and spent time with the with the Sami, the Lap people, and you know, and it was. I mean, the Arctic is such an amazing place. I mean, it just is amazing. And um, it, you know, it wasn't the constant snow. It, you know, it was it was all continental. So it wasn't what you call high Arctic, yeah. but there was snow all the time. I mean, you know, on all the peaks and stuff, and there's permafrost and you know all that. But so being able
0: to travel is just a is just a really important part of your personal history.
2: Absolutely. In fact, it, it's really a significant part. I've, I've been on every continent uh, except for Antarctica. And uh, I trekked in Nepal, been to Tibet, China twice, Africa, and Brazil. Spent two months in Brazil. And, um, you know, and again, it's, it's that cultural thing that's, that attracts me. You know, the people, the, the, the earthiness of things, you know
0: so michael we're we're really winding up and kind of packing a lot of experience and knowledge into your life you know here's here's the question where where does woodworking start to come in when do you how did that interest come about and when does the table saw get turned on
2: (laughs) uh it was it it was a subtle thing it was more i i'm I'm a visual person Mm -hmm. and form has has a real and i i start to see that in my photography Mm -hmm. that the images were more about the form of things, you know, they weren't so much, they weren't like, um, about people, although people were in some, but it was really form.
1: Right. That was actually my question is you were less of a, of a people person photographer and more of, I mean, I can imagine you being in Alaska and just shooting a million pictures of, of just that incredible landscape.
2: Yeah. And so, um, and, you know, I, I became aware, and I'm not sure where it started. Some of it, the library was a big part because you, so much stuff came in past you. I, you know, became aware of Shaker and, you know, was impressed by that simplicity. Scandinavian modern, uh, again, the same thing. It was it was this kind of simple but wholeness that was there, you know. And, you know, I would, and so I started reading Books in the library about woodwork, and basically that's where I learned my skills. Uh, I didn't get to practice them a whole lot. I made a bed for myself when I first moved out of uh, my parents' house, and oh, and I made a stool. I made a stool when I was living at my parents' house. Um, we had we did had a, had what we called the workroom. It had a workbench. And my father had, my mother had given my father a set of Stanley tools when for a wedding present. And so we had those tools available to us and we could just go down there and fool around. So, you know, that was something we always did just to kill time. Uh, really, I didn't get into it until actually I, I left the library because I was as much as it was a comfortable place to work. There was something about the idea of being not in control of your time. It just didn't seem right. I wanted, and what I described it was, I wanted to live an integrated life where work and and life weren't so compartmentalized. And so I had a girlfriend at the time, and uh, I was I, I had gone back to school. I was finishing school, and I said to myself, "Well, once I graduate, I'm going to move to New York. She was g- going to Pratt and uh, I'll move to New York and do photography. And I did. The thing was pursuing a profession in photography, I didn't really know anything about how to run a business. I mean, I had got you know, some, some acknowledgement as a photographer, you know, uh, but I didn't really I was at loss in terms of how to negotiate and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, but I, you know, I had some jobs. I did work for a little local Brooklyn newspaper. I, you know, did some film still stuff and, you know, a little bit of this, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that was viable. And uh, I was living in Brooklyn and I, my landlord was a plumber. I was moved into this community of uh, homeowners who had bought homes. They were homesteaders, really. They bought homes in, in less than ideal communities and we're fixing them up. And it was like this real interesting community. It was a very important part of my life, actually, because it, it loosened me up in a certain way. So my landlord was a plumber. He had been an art director. He was a Cidic Jew who had dropped out. And uh, he was looking for you know what he was going to do. And he decided, well, people always need a plumber. You know again with no training per se he you know he and a friend started doing plumbing and they called it brooklyn only the company because they only did work in brooklyn and uh so he was doing it working on a kitchen uh and that was also when people were moving into the old brownstones this was back in the 70s uh, mid 70s i guess and um this couple had bought a brownstone and they were renovating it, and they, he said, well, they are looking for a carpenter, and he said, you know, you could do it. He'd seen that I'd build, you know, my bed, bookcases, a desk, and my darkroom, and, you know, just kind of knew my way around some tools, and uh, so I took the job, and then work just started coming, you know, it was almost like, because there were so many people who were doing this, that they would see you working, and then come, and, You know want to hire you i wound up having a contracting business but on the job i would learn uh you know i remember going home having to hang a door and going home and reading about how to hang a door you know and then going back and doing it (laughs) and uh so you know it was it but it was it was it was a very interesting time you know you you i felt so free during that time of just being and surviving and yeah. being, I don't know. It, it was a very it's a very interesting change, very much from from living in D.C. So you know that got more and more uh, successful, and I had a few employees. But as that happened, the part that I didn't like about that was the yeah, being a boss for other the, people, <laughs> you know, subcontractors. The you know making sure their supplies, you know, the the whole headache part of it. I, I, I like the physical manipulation. And so I had some friends who were moving into a shop. They were Pratt graduates and they were starting a model shop. Uh, they called uh, Brooklyn Model Works. They were doing props and special effects for film and stuff, you know, and, uh, you know they were looking for somebody to share the space and i yeah okay you know so i went in there and started doing kitchens i'd done some kitchens you know i did one in the basement of the house i live in with you know a skill saw a router and a jigsaw you know? <laughs> and you know it was just you know straight edge you know no nothing stationary you know and and you know then i one of the things i realized about mm-hmm. cabinets were that you know they're basically boxes and the only expressive part were the facades and uh i don't i don't remember oh i know i the first piece of furniture i sold was to i had a client who i renovated four buildings for and uh, i made him a desk and that was the first piece that i would sold it was kind of a, a shaker-ish uh, trestle desk but then other you know people would come i don't know i don't even sure how remember how these contacts were made exactly and so i started making things and what i would do was design within my capability what i knew i could do
1: Right, which is, interestingly enough, probably the worst way to design because it doesn't really allow you to open up your mind to the possibilities, but I think it's where we all begin.
2: and it was also some copying. I mean, you know, I was looking at the details of, of, uh, you know, when I wanted to introduce a curve of a skirt and a leg and how it was done in Scandinavian modern where you didn't have that short grain at the end. You know, you you were just kind of looking at things. And, uh, but I would basically give myself a challenge to do something I hadn't done before. You, I would try to do that with each project. That was basically how I, you know, learned. I mean, you know, I started making bent laminations and, you know, thing, I remember that I did that I was doing a dining table and I made the base and it was wobbly. And I was thinking, Oh, what can I do here to stabilize? And then I said, Oh, some curves that would give it some stability. And there it was. So you, um, you know that that was it, really.
1: That's interesting because that was like one of my earliest large failed pieces. Was a uh, a large was over five foot in diameter uh, dining table that was all built out of curves, but it it just literally it was almost a lazy susan. So the whole education was how do how do I stabilize yeah, this yeah. structure in an ex, in an aesthetically right, pleasing way? Right.
2: But but you know there were failures too. You know I mean that 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 was the whole thing, but. It was a very free form kind of learning and it went on for 20 some years. I mean, I got married and that was, boy, that was such a, I look back on that and that was so amazing to, you know, I was married to this woman who was just, she was a photographer, Sarah Wells, and our life was, we just were amazed at how much fun we had and how little money we had.
1: How did your design sensibility and and inspirations develop once you started into the world of making let's call it functional objects call it furniture I don't know why why do I use that word I don't know
2: uh it was just looking at things and you know again having that visual resonance you know I mean it really was kind of a resonating Mm -hmm. you know I would look at things and there was something about the energy of that shape that just seemed to make sense to me or seemed um special. And, you know, I would sketch some of that. I would, you know, um, I would just, you know, I I call it just putting information in, looking at things that resonate and paying a little more attention to them. And then finding that they would come out in a way that was semi-conscious. I'll give you an example. Um, Upstate New York, they have these uh, high tension lines that are made out of two tall uh, wooden telephone poles with a bent lamb across connecting them and the high tension wires hanging from that's bent lambs. And that was just like, I would see that and it was just like, that is just so beautiful. Uh, well,
0: I'm picturing your pieces that have that feature in them. I can see what you're what you're alluding to, and for our listeners, that obviously this is a podcast. We'll put some of those pictures on our website so you can yeah. see what and and Michael's referring to. And it was just
2: I was you know wanted to make a table. of the speculative piece, and I wanted to bet lamb in it, but you know I just and then all of a sudden that that image popped out, and it was like mm-hmm. okay, I can. I can engineer this to make it work as a table.
0: So that sounds like that time so you're talking about energy in your furniture. Mm-hmm. When does that when does that energy start to demand from you more story and more history? When does that start to come into it? There's um, a lot of your pieces now and pieces that you've built in the latter part of your career are very historically
2: informed. Yeah. I you know, I don't know. I don't know where that that comes in. Maybe it's just kind of a, a maturity.
1: Interestingly enough, I find often when I'm asked questions like that, I make something up because I want there to be a mm-hmm. story as opposed to just sort of the complex mess that my mm-hmm. psyche is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really appreciate the fact that you didn't you didn't go yeah. there. It was it's just a it's just a byproduct of maturing and developing a visual sense over yeah. time that yeah. you yeah. have you have really you don't you
0: can't put your thumb on no. that. Part. No, that's a. No.
2: No, I can't you yeah. know it it it's it's
0: well that just speaks to the complete honesty of your work, right you yeah. know or of
2: yeah. anybody's work when I do a piece, I know what it's gonna be, you know um, and I know that through the you know this process of of sketching and then doing uh, an orthographic drawing that scales it, and uh I've even done some models for some pieces that. I just couldn't. I remember the first piece, a uh, piece I made, and I just was thinking of, you know, front elevation, side elevation, and then I, when I made it, I looked at it from a three-quarter point of view, and I said, "This is not uniform. This is not, you know, they aren't connect, they aren't connected enough." And that was a very insightful uh, experience of realizing that you know that that the form you know because it's 3D it has to make sense in all of its views you you could and 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 that's the trick of drawing in a way you can draw all kinds of things that you can't do you can you know so true and and you can you know but you know and and I'm not a very good I don't draw well you know my sketches are pretty loose, and you know I'm kind of embarrassed to show them to people sometimes. You know? <laughs> that sounds like what Eric and I both say about our sketchbooks, <laughs> right? Because I mean,
1: we actually we actually had this conversation with Katie Hudnell on our in our last conversation, and she has Gown, a Gown, ridiculously Gown. amazing sketchbook yeah, and, and yeah, drawing ability. Yeah, and, but the thing about her sketchbook, and I think the thing about all of her sketchbooks, is that they're really diaries in the sense that they represent a progression of our mm-hmm. thoughts, no matter how disorganized mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. are. And but I am curious is how developed is an idea before you build it?
2: Pretty developed. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the process of, of doing the orthographic drawing, I'm also working out how it's going to be joined. In my, in my head, I'm not, I'm not doing those kind of detailed drawings at all. Right. I'm just doing, you know, a, a front elevation, a, a side elevation and a planned view. But in working that out and thinking about how they connect, those elements connect, I've, I've pretty much worked out what kind of joinery is going to be used. Unlike, say, um, Jim Krenoff, who, you know, starts mocking up his piece as it's going and just, you know, I already know that it it has a unity in my head.
1: Right. And and that really comes across in the work cuz I, I think about your iconic pieces and and there is a simplicity yet boldness in the form and I'm speaking specifically of your your leather top mm-hmm. bench which mm-hmm. is there is a unity mm-hmm. there. There is a there is a a, a boldness mm-hmm. in the form and the same with the barrow mm-hmm. chair. Um, and, and even the same with the, with, the, with the, your, your room screen, your yeah, room divider. Yeah. There's a, there's a simplicity yet a boldness mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is an, an interesting counter. Right.
2: I can talk about the, the, uh, bench a bit, um, because that was, I, that was a departure piece in some ways for me. And so I got that commission actually in Brazil, um, because I was, in brazil initially to install my brother's installation at the sao paulo Bienal. and the consulate there had a party and some people came down from uh, chicago that's where martin was living at the time you know art people uh and so i you know we're just you know small talk drinking and stuff and this uh woman asked me what did i do and i said well i build custom furniture she said oh i need a bench to put my stockings on and i thought mm, <laughs> "This a party talk here you know <laughs> not going anywhere oh give me your card give me your card so i gave her my card and figured you know that was and uh i got back i don't know how long afterwards i get a call and she says yes i you know i want you to do this And so I designed it and it was, it was really, there were forms in there that were very resonant. One is the, the, you notice that the seat has a slump to it. Well, Mm -hmm. those rails actually were mimicking uh, Japanese swords in their scabbard. Yeah, and oh, that wow. form again—it's another form that's just so beautiful. Just it's, it's
0: beautiful and it's really nice and it's subtle. Subtle,
2: it, absolutely. Then the legs were picking up on in Africa. They have these gongs that usually are in pairs. Uh, usually, mm-hmm. one's bigger than the other, but the legs were kind of picking up that stylized profile. They didn't follow it exactly. Those two things were the basis of it, and you know, again, working out. There was a lot of head shaping in that to get that
1: right and and actually interestingly enough the pieces yes. in bubinga is that a is
2: that a Native no, Brazilian wood? i
1: mean it's a tropical yeah it's african but it's, it's
2: hard it as hard as can quite be quite hard yeah and it can have some pretty wild grain sometimes you know not always but you know. right what's interesting about that story too was i had actually been able to create a a, a, a sketch you know something that represented the object in 3d and I showed it to her, and she says, Oh, yeah, go ahead, do that. And I went and did it, and I delivered it, and I was met with silence. Hmm. Huh. Well, never a good thing. You never know. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, Oh my God, you know, and she paid me. I went home, I said to my wife, I said, You know, I really screwed up. And then the phone rang, and it was her. <gasps> and she says, I was oh. speechless. But. Part of what it was is that she couldn't read the drawing. And I've realized that there are a lot of people who can't read. Drawing is a literacy. So she mm-hmm. had no idea what it was really going to be. And so sometimes now for yeah. some people where I get that feeling, I, I will make a model, you yeah. know, just so that they can see it in, in a three-dimensional way. But that was the story of that.
1: I've had clients like that, and actually, my most interesting client was legally blind. So, I actually had I had to make a model in which he could feel, and that was a that was a really interesting perspective in how to think about design.
0: Now, did you get some feedback from that? Client? Oh, I
1: definitely did.
0: Based on the model, oh like- yeah.
1: Actually, one of the most important things was to get the scale of the pieces. I actually built it in cardboard and wood
2: to scale. Hmm. Me too. That's what I do too. I. I take my orthographic drawing, make copies of it, and then cut it out and use those as patterns for the elements. And I try to even get uh, the closeness to thicknesses, you know, uh, for let's say a top, you know, in scale.
1: Obviously we could talk with you for hours, Michael, and we're not even glancing the surface. But before we wrap up, you and I were talking on the phone yesterday and we started to get into something that I felt I was really naive about, which is I'm really naive about a lot. So let's be totally honest here. But we were talking about the notion of making. Mm. And, and I had made the comment that I thought the term making was a relatively new term because I didn't really hear that term until the, you know, the do it yourself, the DIY movement.
2: And,
1: and you sought to correct me. And I said, Oh, please wait, let's do this on the Uh podcast. Uh So I really would love to get your perspective on making on the word make and the history of it, because you do have a rich history as as a historian,
2: yeah, yeah. And, and as a person interested in culture and, and, that's and where culture it, and making, that's so, where it goes is that from the time man picked up an object and modified it, that's the beginning of making. You know, whether he broke a rock or picked up a stick and put a point on it, whatever it was, that's the origin of making. If making is, is such an essential part of us as human beings, we live in a made world everything around us has been made but we're completely unaware of the importance of that we just take it for granted you know that yeah that's a lamp. you know this is a chair. you know but there was thought and a lot of energy put into each of these objects that we live in i said that once in in uh, class one time to some students and It was like this one woman, girl came back and she says, I never thought of that. And people don't because, you know, you've just been living with this stuff. And, you know, but so that's the origin of making. And so I was thinking about I was particularly contemplating this whole art craft divide. And one of the things that dawned on me was a way to get your mind around it was to find a common denominator. And the word making was that. You know, because that's what you're doing. And what is making? Making, you, you don't make anything unless it what what are the elements of making? Let's put it that way. There's the concept or the idea, there's the material, and there's the process. Those three things are essential to making. Any one of them can be the the, the initial stimulation of the thing. But until you've put those three together, you don't have any concrete thing at all.
0: So the the fourth level, the fourth step being art or craft or mechanical, and then the three original elements that you said are all the same
2: to lead well, up to that. Yeah, I mean, that, well, that's what all art and craft are doing. That you yeah, know, yeah. And what it occurred to me, well, that you know, I had also been thinking about, well, where did this dichotomy happen? And essentially, it happened during the Renaissance, when you started to have people who were becoming wealthy and powerful, but weren't inheriting the wealth and their power. You know, you had merchants and so forth. And before that, painters, sculptors, all the things that we consider fine art were guild makers. You know, they were part of a guild. They were all craftsmen. And that was where it got separated because those, you know, painting was a functional thing. It was a way of, of you know, carrying culture forward. But then all of a sudden it started to become expressive, personal expressive. And uh, and these, these like the Medici's, you know, they, they were, their wealth was such that they wanted to surround themselves with beauty. And so the, the, Sculptors and artists, by and large, then painters, uh, got separated from the craft, and it became much more of an elite expression. Uh, And that's really kind of the, the, the difference, really. That's where it happened. But the thing that's so interesting about it is that it's about language. Language is the medium through which we get acculturated and the process is that we start to name things we point to things and we give it a name and in so doing we are separating it from the matrix which it really is part of so and i've become more and more aware of this that you know these things that we give names to they actually have this seamless continuity about them Race is a classic example. You know, I mean, we we dichotomize types of people, but underneath it, it's just people. Yeah. You know, uh, color is a, is a classic example. Um, in different cultures, in our culture, we have so many ways of describing co- color. But there was a group in uh, of Amerindians in in Patagonia who only had three words for color. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't see the full spectrum. Yeah. They only broke it up into three parts. So you begin to realize that language is the thing that's giving us our, you know, dividing up the world and, and dichotomizing it, really. Yeah. But underneath it, there's a lot of seamlessness that, you know, would help to go back and push through some of that and see that there's a continuity and so much of, of what we now talk about, I see it happening in music right now. You know, there's so many music types. You know, just oh my god, you know, this indie and garage and you know, I mean, I'm, in, and, you I'm know, in the
0: heavy so metal world, and there's 200 types of heavy metal.
2: I know, I know, yeah. And and w- what what value does that have? Yeah, largely commercial. Yeah, I mean, but that that's but mm-hmm. but that naming is such a powerful thing. And we, we, it even goes to the point that we think the name is the thing, when actually it's a symbol of a thing. It's a represent, it's a verbal representation of a, of something perceived, but it's not the thing. But the, we've we've gone so far that we think these words are somehow irrevocably linked mm-hmm. to the thing. And um, so, you know, that's my understanding of it, based on you know what I've thought about it. And uh, I think that making is really a, a good common denominator for what man does. I mean, there's a, a species of humans that's called Homo habilis. Uh, and I think that's really what we should be rather than Homo sapiens, you know, because I don't think we've exercised enough intelligence <laughs> to qualify yet for that. But we damn sure know how to make things.
1: Yeah, and and I just love the notion of making because it, it doesn't tend to segregate us off into sculptors exactly. and potters. Exactly, it's, and... it's freeing,
2: it's freeing. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I always love looking at people who work and what they're doing. I mean, you know, I, it's just, I mean, I, I'm just so fascinated by it. I, you know, things I don't even know about, glass blowing. I mean, I've seen it and it's yeah. just like, wow, that's the world to me is that there's just so much that you just, you know, just let it come in. Don't be judgmental about it.
1: Right. And, and that seems like a perfect place to wrap up this conversation with uh, Michael Piriere. We thank you very much for, for joining us. It was a wonderful conversation. And as we end up all our sessions, Why Make?
2: More than welcome. Thank you. Why Make?
1: Why Make? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or a direct download
0: from our website, y-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Why Make Podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Why Make Pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.